October the 6th, 2002, His Holiness Pope John Paul II solemnly declares that Jose Maria Escriva de Balaguer, the founder of Opus Dei, is a saint worthy of the veneration of the faithful. Monsignor Escriva is the 464th saint to be canonized by this pope. Beatissime Pater, nomine Sante Ecclesiae, enixer gracias ago de pronunciazione a sanctitate vestra facta, acumiliter peto, uteadem sanctites vestra, super per acta canonizzazione, literas apostolicas dignetur de cernere. Saints Alive, the whys and wherefores of hagiography. Saints Alive, narrated by Jerry McArdle. It has to be a good thing because it comes from God. Because if God makes a person so saintly that he gives that person the power to perform a miracle and then that... The, the whole courier looking at it sees that that person is a saint. The Lord has to be pleased. My view is that God knows better than anybody else who saints are, and I think it's slightly presumptuous to be creating them all over the place. Some of the males frightened me. There was always, you know, scary stories. And I used to grow up um, listening to stories of Patrick Pio. Those who had um, devotion to Patrick Pio often came across came across some terrible times and I said he's not the man for me thank you very much good luck the saints are like the stars in his providence Christ conceals them in a hidden place that they may not shine before others when they might wish to do so Yet they are always ready to exchange the quiet of contemplation for the works of mercy as soon as they perceive in their heart the invitation of Christ. It is the glory of the church that it cannot name all the saints. It is the glory of the church that it cannot remember all the saints. It is the glory of Christ that we cannot count all the saints. Saints are found behind all the rocks of the mountain. Saints are found among the trees of the wood. Saints hide in blossoms, ride birds, top clouds, follow passages under the earth. They sweep the floors of the universe. They take out the garbage of the cosmos. The faithful cling to the roots of the saints growing up from the ground. 
Father Richard P. McBrien is Professor of Theology at Notre Dame University in the United States. He's also a broadcaster, columnist, and the author of a number of books, including Lives of the Saints. The word saint in the Latin sanctus means holy. Uh, a saint is a person, more technically, who uh, in their lives on earth are regarded to have lived lives of heroic virtue. In other words, they weren't just good people. They were good people. In an ex- they were ordinary people who lived their, their uh, lives in an extraordinarily uh, holy manner. Uh, it doesn't mean their entire lives were that way. We have, we have stories of, of great saints who are who are also great sinners for a good part of their life, and then they had a transformation later in life. So it isn't, it doesn't mean that from the very moment they were conceived and the moment they came out of their mother's body, uh, they were, uh, you know, surrounded by a halo uh, and lived only a good life. Uh, it just means that uh, in an overall assessment of their life, and of course in the way in which they brought it to a that it came to a conclusion at the time of their death. Uh, the church said that these were people who lived their ordinary human lives in an extraordinarily virtuous way and such that we can hold them up as models or examples for the rest of the church to follow. Gina Menzies is renowned in Ireland as a theologian. If you look at the history of sainthood and the history of those who have been canonized, to a great degree they have been male, um, they have been from the clerical or the religious uh, state of life. They have been celibate and also they've been European. So if you were to sort of trawl through the thousands of saints that have been canonised since the beginning of Christianity, you'd find most of them fitted into that category and were elevated because they lived lives of extraordinary spirituality and asceticism. However, I would have a, quite a strong view that the world is full of saints and that a lot of them are very ordinary people. Um, there are married people who struggle with, their, with their, their own lives. There are people who care for the sick and there are people who, leave, who lead lives of, of very quiet heroicism. So I suppose heroicism would be kind of some kind of heroic sense of living out of Christian reality would be kind of my criteria um, and it wouldn't necessarily be visible to everybody. Anyone who is in heaven is a saint. Uh, the difference between a canonized saint and a, and, a, and a regular saint in heaven is that the canonized saint has been literally put on a list. That's what the word canonization means. It comes from a Greek word, kanon, which means a list or a rule. And uh, uh, so to, when the church canonizes uh, someone, they're simply adding them to a list of individuals who, are, who have died, uh, that the church is convinced they're in heaven, but more than that. They're added to a list so that the rest of the church can look to these individuals as models or examples of sanctity, which they themselves can follow. And they're also on a list which allows the church to venerate them, to give them a feast day, to, uh, to give them a, a mass, for example, with their own special prayers, uh, to, to authorize individual members of the church to pray to them for, uh, as intercessors with God, uh, to help them in some time of need or to secure some spiritual or material benefit. So that's the first thing to be said is that there are, you know, we, we like to think millions of saints in heaven, but a relatively smaller number are canonized. I want to be a saint on my way to heaven. Let me be the leaven to a world. When I started doing uh, 
Christian music uh, in in that whatever you want to call it in that circuit around uh, around the states here. Uh, uh, a lot of people would interview me and say, "You were born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth. You know what was it like to live in the Holy Land?" And I said, "No, this was this is Pennsylvania, and uh, Nazareth is a very tiny town. Uh, at the, well, at the time I was born, it was probably five or six thousand people, and uh, and uh, my father actually was a carpenter uh, professionally. So uh, when I started doing Christian music, of course, that became." became kind of an interesting handle. Perhaps then it's not surprising that musician Tom Franzak composed, staged, and now tours the United States, performing his one-man show, Saints. Over the last 15 years, I've done various recordings, and, you know, they're usually based on, you know, on scripture or or some inspirational writings or, uh, you know, life experience of, you know, that maybe I've had or something I've encountered uh, out there uh, in the lives of other people. But... Um, it was really around um, 90, 96, 97 that I was thinking I wanted to do something a little bit different. And, and maybe uh, if I could bring to light something that maybe had been not, uh, maybe sort of forgotten or not as emphasized as perhaps it once was, the idea of the saints came to mind uh, and, was, and I was very attracted to it because when I first came back to the church, my spiritual director, who was a uh, Benedictine uh, monk, used to give me these books to read all the time, and um, and I started after a while, I started realizing you know, these were all, you know, they're basically all written by saints, and um, and there's a lot of um, the thing is when people withstand the test of time, and uh, you know you can look back on their lives and uh, the legacy that they leave us in, in their writings. Uh, uh, there's just there's a lot of stability and a lot of wisdom there that I, I think we haven't taken advantage of. It very often I think when you think of saints, people often think of you know a very uh, a, a removed person from this reality. You know, someone who who really wasn't like us, or someone that we can reduce to kind of a very one-dimensional holy card kind of uh, personality. With the saints, it became I was slightly unnerved. I'll be honest. I I was thinking how you know. First of all, you think, well, how dare I try to do this? And then when you get past that, you think, well, what, you know, is there a kind of a, a feeling, a vibe about this person that maybe lends itself more to one kind of music than another? And I, I really I really didn't come with any preconceived uh, idea where this was going to go. I, I spent the first probably year, year and a half, uh, just really going through readings and things and looking at... So maybe some old favorites, old uh, saints that saints and writings that have, were kind of dear to me, and then uh, just kind of uh, listening to uh, other people's suggestions and and uh, and looking at uh, influential voices in the church and just trying to see if if something jumped out, if a text just really you know kind of said to me, set me to music. Television presenter Jerry May has this memory from childhood to share. When I was younger, my Granny DC had a very large picture of Saint Teresa of Lisieux in the bedroom where I was, where I often slept, and I would often lie there after waking up at a ridiculously early hour and think, "She has skin. Any Hollywood movie star would kill for. Flawless." It was a thought that would often cross my mind when I saw pictures of any of the female saints. St. Bernadette, St. Bridget, most of them were size 10 and beautiful in the pictures. 
Not even airbrushed. Teresa Vlissieux, who, um, her, the, the poem that I said of hers, here, here's a really a, a young girl, a very young woman, writing about God's love in, in such a profound way. I mean, she's really lecturing through this song. Uh, if you hear the story of how, how the poem came about, uh, she had written a poem for, uh, uh, for a uh, superior of another convent. And uh, she basically ended up teaching her a lesson about what it means to love. And it's not to love because you get a reward at the end. It's to love because we're called to love, period, you know. And, uh, and I think sometimes for those people who are walking, uh, you know, trying to live a Christian life, but just feeling that things are sort of flat or feeling after a while that they should be getting something back, that sometimes it, you need to be reminded that, you know, Christ loved to the end and uh, no less uh, at the end than at the beginning. We have to just stay, stay the course and, and, and love because we're just simply called to love and, and, uh, and we let, you know, whatever God, uh, you know, may have in store for us in the end is really not our concern right now. We're, that's not what it's about. You know, we're called to grow, to become more and more Christ-like, more and more like the God within us. And so uh, loving that kind of selfless, with that kind of selfless love, I think is a powerful message that that Therese transmits uh, very profoundly. These roses trampled lie beneath the passer's tread, unmarked, unknown. I comprehend their lot. These leaves, though pale and dead, are still thine own. For thee they die. As I, my time, my life, my all have spent for thee. Men think a fading rose am I, whose leaves must fall at death's decree. In America, there's a strong following for a woman called Dorothy Day, uh, the founder of the um, Catholic Workers' Movement, um, who founded, you know, did extraordinary work, and her name lives on, and the houses in her name, houses of hospitality to, to workers who had to sort of move all over the world to find work. Um, and she had an abortion in her early life, so there's no way she's ever going to get into the canon of sainthood. And I suspect that if they were looking at Mary Magdalene uh, today, she probably wouldn't reach... Uh, the right sort of level either, but I think she's here to stay. Now, Dorothy Day was a pacifist. Uh, she was an anti-war activist in the United States. Uh, she was also one who, who ministered to the homeless in a very heroic way. I mean, uh, people could say that she has the, the makings of a saint for that alone. But the reason why Archbishop Cardinal O'Connor initially promoted her cause is that Dorothy Day had had an abortion in her younger life and came later to regret it bitterly. And for him, that was, the, that was the point of entry. I mean, here is a woman who had an abortion, who recognized it was a terrible sin that she had committed, and had repudiated it, and had uh, changed her life. Well, let's face it, most people, if they admire Dorothy Day in the United States and elsewhere, 
Admire her not so much because she repented of her abortion, but because of her work on behalf of the poor and the homeless and her, her work against violence in the world. Mina Bani Krabin is a postmistress. She's an outspoken champion of traditional Catholic values. My favorite saint is Saint Philomena, basically because I'm called after her, but also because she was the first saint I ever heard about. Being called after her, my mother told me all about her and all about how she was a miracle worker. Mammy had the word Taumaturga, which is still, she's still called, it means wonder worker. And she was the wonder worker of our household whenever you wanted anything. You asked her, basically, mostly got it. Mammy would have been born 1890, but St. Philomena's relics were discovered in 1802. And from that, between the discovery and then bringing them to Mognano, there was a bit of time elapsed, and then on the 10th of August, which is her feast day, the relics were transferred where she wanted them, in Mugnano. She was, uh, her parents were converts to Catholicism, and then she was born and grew up a very holy child, and then the Emperor Diocletian wanted her because she was very pretty, and the way he was waging war, and Philomena's father wanted her to surrender and marry the emperor because it would have saved the country and everything and she said no I've promised I've promised to be a nun I've promised a state of chastity all my life and I'm not doing that and she had to, to give up the whole notion of saving her parents but that's what she did and Diocletian then when he found he couldn't marry her he martyred her Popes sometimes play politics that is they, they make saints not simply because they think this individual is, was really a holy person and should be held up to the rest of the church as a model or an example for others to follow. But they make saints sometimes because they're, <clears throat> they're trying to make a political point. One example that comes immediately to mind is after the First World War, Pope Benedict XV canonized Joan of Arc, primarily to try to heal a broken relationship, or a broken diplomatic relationship between the Holy See and, uh, and, the, and the French government. Uh, that relationship had been badly harmed during the First World War, but especially by Benedict XV's predecessor in the papacy, Pius X, who was very, very critical of the French government, thought it was too secularistic, was always giving it a hard time, and it was real bad feeling. And it was after the end of the uh, First World War that Benedict XV, who was really one of the one of the best popes of modern times. Lots of people don't know Benedict XV, but he was one of the great popes of the modern times. Benedict XV said, you know, we've got to do something to heal this bad relationship between the Holy See and the government of France. After all, historically, France was always considered the daughter of the church, great Catholic country. And so he, uh, he promoted the canonization of Joan of Arc, uh, who was popular in France. And th that was a political move. Does it mean that Joan of Arc wasn't worthy of being made a saint? Not necessarily. Uh, but it, uh, my point is that they also have political implications. When John Paul II canonized Jose Maria Escrivá de Belaguer, uh, the founder of uh, Opus Dei, that was a form of playing politics. Opus Dei is a very ultra-conservative Catholic organization uh, which has been very uh, uh, um, supportive of John Paul II and his, his uh, uh, apostolates that gave a lot of money uh, in support of the Solidarity Movement in Poland. And so it was really 
in a sense, paying off a debt. And um, uh, people were very offended when John Paul II had promoted him. In the preface to his play, St. Joan, concerning saints, popes, and the Catholic Church, George Bernard Shaw had quite a few things to say. As revelation may come by way of an enlightenment of the private judgment, no less than by the words of a celestial personage appearing in a vision, a saint may be defined as a person of heroic virtue whose private judgment is privileged. Many innovating saints, notably Francis and Clare, have been in conflict with the Church during their lives and have thus raised the question whether they were heretics or saints. Francis might have gone to the stake had he lived longer. It is therefore by no means impossible for a person to be excommunicated as a heretic and on further consideration canonized as a saint. Excommunication by a provincial ecclesiastical court is not one of the acts for which the Church claims infallibility. Perhaps I'd better inform my Protestant readers that the famous dogma of papal infallibility is by far the most modest pretension of the kind in existence. Compared with our infallible democracies, our infallible medical councils, our infallible judges, and our infallible parliaments, the Pope is on his knees in the dust, confessing his ignorance before the throne of God, asking only that as to certain historical matters on which he has clearly more sources of information than anyone else, his decision shall be taken as final. We could get into the whole area of infallibility, which would be fascinating. All I could say about it is, and it's interesting, in the new code of canon law, the 1983 code, which is the code that came out of Vatican II, even though it, you know, it was about 25 years later, um, the new code of canon law only has two references to, to saints, and what it says in one of them is a reference to, to Our Lady, um, that she is to be venerated, and the second one says that only those designated by the Catholic Church to be in the canon should be sort of venerated as such. And, and that's the only reference, actually, to the whole process in the code, which is interesting. Every husband and wife fights, but they never fight about their deep love for one another. They fight about, fight about a bill, fight about being late for a meal. And we're fighting, too, but we're not fighting about something very basic, namely our love of Christ. And this is the bond that will eventually pull us together. The late Archbishop Fulton Sheen, preaching in Dublin in 1968. Martin Shaw is a United Kingdom Parliamentary Secretary who was in Dublin recently to promote the cause for canonization of Fulton Sheen. I think he was particularly compelling in, in his writings and really um, explaining uh, the, the gospel um, and the life of Christ in a way that... That, that, that appeals right across a broad spectrum and his great devotion to the Eucharist where he was able to, to, to keep a promise that he made before becoming a priest that he would spend one hour before the Blessed Sacrament every day of his priesthood. Um, it was clear that he ha had come to know the Lord uh, very, very closely and had written uh, so well of him. Only a few months before he died, um, he was greeted in St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York by... Pope John Paul II on his first visit to America where he said, Fulton Sheen, you have spoken and written well of the Lord Jesus. You have been a very faithful um, priest. 
Um, he died while making a holy hour. Your death, of course, officially takes effect from when you are found, but it is thought that he expired rather late on the 8th of December, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. It was always one of his greatest uh, hopes that he might uh, die on a Saturday or on one of Our Lady's feasts. It was his hope that when the Lord welcomed him into the kingdom, he would say, Come on in, Fulton Sheen. I often heard my mother speak of you. He was uh, a very attractive uh, person. I think he was very conscious uh, of his looks. Um, he was a very compelling uh, speaker. Um, he, I think he was a natural. He was a total uh, pro. I think that uh, it was quite clear that he lived um, his message, um, and I think that is borne out through his familiarity with the Eucharist. And we are living in a time where this Holy Father has canonized more and beatified more uh, saints uh, than any other. Uh, but there has never been uh, a North American male saint. Um, and so Fulton Sheen will be the first if this cause takes root. RTE's head of religious programs, Father Dermot McCarthy, recalls the late Archbishop. I always had a very high impression of uh, Fulton Sheen as a broadcaster, as a speaker, as a performer. However, that opinion took a severe knocking on, uh, around Easter time in the mid-70s when I was endured with a group of handicapped Irish kids. So uh, this particular year we got a very good hotel, our group, down near the grotto. Very fancy place altogether. And... Uh, I was delighted when we went in the first evening and went to the dining room and to have our dinner. And over in the corner, I spotted the great man, Bishop Fulton Sheen. That was grand. He was there the next day for lunch and the evening meal, and the next day for lunch and the evening meal. And then I noticed that he never once came over to say hello to the children, who were obviously uh, disabled in one way or another. Some of them spina bifida, some of them Down syndrome, some of them in wheelchairs and so on. But I thought it was odd that this man never once came and said hello to them, given his track record as a, as a very concerned person and so on. And uh, one afternoon there was a light rain and we were get, therefore getting ready to go out by getting our plastics on the wheelchair users and putting on plastic coats and rain hats and umbrellas and so on. And in the door came Bishop Sheen with his two helpers. And he looked down and looked rather disdainfully at the clutter and the mess through which he had to negotiate his way. And he picked his steps through the various bits and pieces of hats and raincoats and so on on the floor, like, as if you were picking your step through cowpats. You know, it was, it, was, it was extraordinary. Fulton Sheen has become a kind of one of the heroes of ultra-conservative Catholics in the United States. That's why he's being pushed. Uh, he is kind of a, an icon or symbol of pre-Vatican II Catholicism. He was, he was one of the great figures of American Catholicism in the days, in their minds, when the church was really the Catholic church, before the Second Vatican Council and Pope John XXIII got their hands on it and messed it up. And now we're hoping that John Paul II is going to make things right. Uh, he's had 24 and a half years to do it, and I'm not so sure that he satisfies all of their, uh, all of their hopes. So you want my opinion? Uh, I hope that Fulton Sheen is not canonized. 
which is not to say I hope Fulton Sheen is not in heaven. I see no reason why we should say that he's not in heaven. I hope he's a saint. But holding him up uh, uh, for, for um, uh, as an example, holding him up for emulation, that's another matter entirely. We're concerned with somebody who touched countless lives by his ministry of evangelization um, and whose uh, success in using the modern media uh, to um, reach his audience was really, you know, unparalleled. Um, he was very clear and courageous, you know, in promoting the t teachings of Jesus and the truths of the church. Um, I mean, what is a saint other than a, a, a great example? Senator David Norris belongs to the Anglican tradition. Well, with regard to favourite saints, in my case it's plural because I'm a greedy person. My first one is St John. And the reason I like St John is that he is the apostle of love. That is what he speaks about. That is what he represents uh, in his relationships with Christ. Uh, and I think that's uh, a very warming and human thing, far more than the strict and forbidding attitudes of St. Paul. Uh, but if I come out of the Gospel period and into the medieval period, of course one has to go for St. Francis because he was part of a kind of a unified creation and he felt the brotherhood of the plants and of the animals. And I think that's so desperately necessary today because I looked at a programme on Television Gaelic the other night and it was about the fur trade, the capture of the most heart-wrenchingly beautiful dogs, the filthy, brutal, vicious way they were killed in order to keep their fur intact. And I will remember the screams of those beautiful dogs as long as I live. And then they showed cats <clears throat> in a cage, and they strangled them through the roof of the, of, of the cage. And the last two were a black cat and a little white cat. And the white cat had its arms terrified around the neck of the black cat. And it looked so human. And I just thought, uh, if we divorce ourselves from an understanding that we are part of the same creation, then we're doomed. Uh, and both of the saints I chose uh, are saints that have to do with love. Uh, St. John is more the human love and the compassion of God for his creation and this kind of love between God and man and how important it is in social relations and so on and so forth, uh, where St. Francis extends this magnificently in an almost Buddhist kind of way to all of creation. They still don't get it. Uh, we use that about our American bishops and the sexual abuse crisis we're facing in this country now, and we could use it about the Vatican. In spite of complaints that there are too few ordinary married people, women and men alike, who are raised to the ranks of the, of the holy in order to be models for 95% of the population which is married and which raise families. Uh, so what did they do just two or three years ago? They beatified a married couple, the Quartrocchi family, uh, uh, not family, but the father and mother who both died. They had been married for a long time. Say, gee, well, they finally got it. They've, they've canonized or beatified an ordinary married couple. And then we find out the facts. After 26 years of marriage, after they had their children, they had four children, they decided to, to live the rest of their marriage as brother and sister, as if there was something wrong with expressing their love in sexual intimacy. Then we also find out something about their four children. Not one of them ever married. Uh, one became a nun, 
One remained a, 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 a consecrated virgin, so to speak, and the, and the two boys became priests. Um, now, look, there's nothing wrong with becoming priest. I'm a priest. There's nothing wrong with becoming a nun. There's nothing wrong with a woman remaining unmarried. But, you know, is that, is that sort of a model family? Singer, actor, and author Liam Clancy chooses as his favorite an Irish saint. Saint Gobnet, or Gobnet. I love the sound of the name Gobnet. For some reason I assumed until recently that Gobnet was a man, but no, she was a woman, much venerated in certain areas from medieval times. The English version of her name is Deborah. Not nearly as interesting, is it? Her feast day is on the 11th of February. The main centres of devotion to her are on Inishir in the Aran Islands, Dunqueen in West Kerry, and Ballyvourney near the Cork Kerry border. A medieval wooden image of Gobnet kept traditionally in a drawer in Ballyvourney Church during the year is venerated in the parish on her feast day. People bring a ribbon with them and measure the statue from top to bottom and around its circumference. This ribbon is then brought home and is used when people get sick or for some special blessing. The statue is thought to belong to the 13th century. In Ballyvourney, she is regarded as a great protector and as much associated with healing. One story tells of how she kept the plague away from that place by drawing a line along the eastern borders of the parish with her stick, beyond which the plague never came. Many accounts exist of how St. Gobnet prevented invaders from carrying off cattle. On the approach of these invaders, she'd let loose the bees from her hives, and they attacked the marauders, forcing them to flee. One version of the tale has the beehive turning into a bronze helmet, and the bees themselves turning into soldiers. Padre Pio was a Capuchin friar who uh, claimed to, or it was alleged that he had the stigmata, which is the, uh, you know, stigmata refers to the wounds of Christ on the cross, the, the nails driven into his hands and uh, his feet, the lance that was pierced his side to make sure he was dead. Uh, so the stigmata are uh, the signs that of, a, of an individual's close identification with the crucified Christ. And those who are said to have the stigmata uh, are said that to have their hands and their feet bleed, uh, maybe their side as well, uh, as a sign of miraculous identification of themselves with the crucified Christ and a sign, obviously, of their sanctity. Padre Pio was said to have the stigmata, he also was, uh, you know, said to be a holy man. He heard thousands of confessions and uh, was said to have celebrated Mass in a very you know, holy way, whatever that means. I think what that really means, and I think uh, um, some of your listeners will appreciate a bit of Irish humor here from America, I think it meant that he's the kind of a priest that most of your listeners wouldn't want to go to Mass, wouldn't want to go to his Mass because it would take too long. Uh, but... Uh, uh, anyway, Padre Pio 
when uh, under Paul VI, you see, he died when Paul VI was pope. He was under a cloud. Paul VI was no fan of Padre Pio. Padre Pio had a lot of critics in the hierarchy and among uh, you know church officials. Uh, and it was uh, and as did Jose Maria Escrivá, by the way. Paul VI would have never named Escrivá a, a, a saint. He was very critical of Opus Dei. But when John Paul II came in, you see, he had a different, he has a different theology, a different spirituality, a different agenda. And, uh, you know, therein lies a tale. I mean, John Paul II's idea of a saint is not only someone who does, you know, heroic work for the poor and the dying like Mother Teresa, but he likes to also include the traditional model of a saint, someone who who lives, a, you know, kind of a very, for our purposes, a very strange kind of life, one that no one can imitate, no one can take as a model. I think to divert your energies into sort of, you know, wanting to suffer unnecessarily when God knows there's enough suffering in the world which needs to be addressed, you know, is, is a false form of, of Christianity. Uh, I accept that, that some people may, may find authenticity in it, but I can't, I can't. A truly holy person is a fully healthy person. If I were Pope and had the powers that the papacy has in canonizing saints, I can tell you right now, I would never canonize someone who claimed to have ecstasies, someone flying around in the rafters like Joseph of Cupertino or somebody. I would never canonize someone like Padre Pio who claimed to have or it was claimed that he had the stigmata because those are really countersigns. I'm not saying those individuals didn't make it into heaven. But those are not only not models of sanctity, but they are actually countersigns because they leave the impression with most people that sanctity is an unattainable goal. And besides, you know, the, the ordinary healthy human being who woke up one morning and there was blood coming out of his palms or out of his feet, his first reaction would not be, oh, thank God, I have the stigmata. His first reaction is, Mary, get me to the emergency room. I'm bleeding. Well, I think insofar as people who are believers would always look for guides and models and people who um, inspire us. I mean, we do in all other areas of life, so why wouldn't we if, you know, if we're believing Christians? Um, I think, yes, there is, there is a future for sainthood, uh, but I do think a, a better uh, and more consistent theology of sainthood needs to be introduced into the Catholic Church. And so the world continues to turn, peopled with saints and sinners alike. Perhaps we might leave the final words to George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan. Oh God, that made us this beautiful earth, when will it be ready to receive thy saints? How long, O oh Lord, how long? Saints Alive featured the voices of Liz Lloyd and Bill Golding. The contributors were Father Richard P. McBrien, Gina Menzies, Tom Franzak, Jerry May, Mina Bani Hribin, Martin Shaw, Father Dermot McCarthy, Senator David Norris, and Liam Clancy. Sound supervision was by Phil Cook. Saints Alive was written, narrated, and produced by Jerry McArdle. Joe's no saint, but I ought to know, for I walk at the bench alongside Joe. He loses his temper just like another. Daisy'd bite the nose off his mother. And when I call for a point of plane, Joe's not slow with the same again. He gives an odd bob to the poor and needy, but you wouldn't call him gospel greedy. You know what I mean? 
So if there's inquiries after he's dead, I won't swear to no halos round his head, for I never seen none. When all's said and done, I don't suppose they give halos out to fellows who like the bottle of stout. <laughs> all the same, though, I'm glad that I walk alongside Joe. For in the morning time I lay on, long after Guinness's swistle is gone, there's scarcely have time for a cup of tea. As for prayers, <laughs> between you and me, the prayers I say is no great load. The Hail Mary may be on Cunningham Road. You know how it is. <laughs> the horn blows on the stroke of eight, and them that's not in time is late. You mightn't get a bus for ages, but if you clock late, they dock your wages. Joe, though. He's never late at all, though he lives at the far end of Upper Hoy Hall. And I happen to know, for the wife's cousin lives in the very same row, that he sets his alarm for half past six, shaves and goes through the whole bag of tricks, just like a Sunday, gets seven mass in Gailtop Park and catches the half-seven bus in the dark. There isn't a thing about him, then, to mark him off from the rest of men. At least there's nothing that I can see. But there must be something that's hid from me... For it's not every eight o'clock man can say that he goes to the altar every day. When my time comes and they lay me out, I won't have much praying to boast about. I don't do much harm, but I don't do much good. And my beads have an easier time than they should. <laughs> so one time Peter rattles his keys and says, What's your record, if you please? <laughs> I'll answer, when I was down below, I walked at a bench alongside Joe. Joe's no saint with a haloed ring, but I often think he's the next best thing. And the bus that he catches at half past seven is bound for O'Connell Bridge. And heaven. You know what I mean. Oh, sinners, let's go down, let's go down, come on. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.